This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. As we become more and more technical all the time, as computers play a larger and larger role every single day, it seems like, we have to ask ourselves just exactly what is the most moral and ethical standard that we can reach using our computers, our Palm Pilots, and everything else that plugs in or goes beep or runs on battery. Well, today we're going to discuss that issue with the author of Habits of the High-Tech Heart, Dr. Quentin Schultz. He's a professor of communication arts and sciences at Calvin College. He writes, teaches, and consults about human communication, one of the most complex but satisfying of all activities. The best communication enables us to commune genuinely with others, he says in his new book, Habits of the High-Tech Heart. Dr. Schultz explores the dilemma of modern life. We are rich in technology but growing poor in community, empathy, and morality. So to talk about our habits of our high-tech heart, I welcome Dr. Quentin Schultz. Thanks, Fred. It's a pleasure. Thank you, sir. I, give me, uh, first of all, your inspiration for... Uh, for writing this. Uh, is it obviously just the fact that you have a computer like the rest of us? Well, it's a little more complex than that. Uh, uh, because I teach in communication, I really have had to have a computer. I've had to have Internet access. Uh, in fact, I've been on the Internet since the 80s. And uh, I, a couple of years ago, I started to have some second thoughts about the extent of my own involvement in all these technologies. Not that I felt like I should get rid of all the technologies or that they're worthless or anything like that, but rather that my life was getting out of uh, balance and I was spending too much time with technology and not enough time in person with the people that I love or say that I love. And as I began to reflect on that, uh, I began to say, well, I really need to make some changes in my own life. And then as I thought about what kind of changes I need to make, I thought, you know, what's really happening here is I'm beginning to rethink uh, the goodness of these technologies and whether or not they naturally lead us to live good and worthy lives or whether or not there are some drawbacks that we have to try to offset. And I came to the latter conclusion. There are, there are drawbacks, and, and, uh, and I think we need balance in our lives. And without balance between what we might call the high-tech and the high-touch, uh, we're going to get into trouble. And in this book in particular, I wanted to focus on the moral issues because I think those are least talked about with the new technologies right now in our society. People talk about all the great information and all the great things that they can do, but uh, we're not talking about whether or not we're actually becoming more moral or less moral people. Do you think that every time there's been a gigantic leap in technology that there has been a book such as yours? I mean, do you think that uh, people asked this question during the Industrial Revolution? Do you think people ask this at the advent of radio and television? Uh, you know, perhaps if uh, Gutenberg didn't publish the Bible, they would have they would have asked this about uh, the printing press. 
Right. Uh, well, we could talk about every one of those media because I've studied the origins of those. My background is really in the history and sociology of the media. Uh, and I can tell you that uh, normally what happens in the early years of a new communication technology, people are very excited. There are some people around who are fearful and anti-technology, but that tends to be a small minority. The vast majority of people are extremely positive and optimistic and the public rhetoric about the new communication technology uh, will tend to assume that this new technology will solve all kinds of social problems. If, if you look at uh, the, the telegraph, which I think is one of the best parallels, uh, you find early on in the talk about the telegraph that this was going to unite humankind. This was going to, bring pre- uh, going to bring peace and harmony, and uh, it's going to be a much better world because of the telegraph. And Again, we see a lot of that kind of rhetoric now with the Internet. Uh, And I've tried to say that we need some people around who are critical of what's happening. Again, not for the sake of getting rid of the technology, but just for balancing it so that we get a realistic perspective, which I think right now with the Internet uh, we desperately need. Uh, From what I gather, uh, looking at the book, uh, while, of course, you are a Christian, and I know that you wrote, probably specifically to a Christian audience, my guess is that it certainly can be wider, because many of the issues that you bring up are are pan-religious. Would you agree to that? Oh, yeah. In fact, I think the way I approach most of those issues is to say that uh, religion can shed some light on them. Uh, I I know a fair amount about the, uh, the Hebrew and Christian traditions, so I use whatever wisdom that I could find in those traditions to help shed some light on our current situation. Um, and um, I'm not one of those folks that talks about uh, Judeo-Christian as much as Martin Marty, the church historian, says in Chicago he's never met a Judeo-Christian. Right. Uh, but I think uh, the Hebrew tradition says a tremendous amount that we need to, to use here, and I think the Christian tradition does. And probably if I knew something about some of the other traditions, or at least in depth about them, uh, there would probably be some wisdom there as well. In fact, I think one of the interesting things about this book, Fred, for, uh, even from the standpoint of the one who, who wrote it, uh, was how much wisdom I found uh, from days of old, from, from ancient wisdom, that really helps shed light on current technology use. And I think that's one of the things that uh, communities of faith need to think about, is how their traditions can help them uh, solve some of these moral quandaries. Speaking of traditions, uh, certainly in one part of the gospel, Jesus says that uh, if you look at a woman with lust, if you do anything in your mind, it's like you've already committed the act, correct? Yeah. So you would, you would uh, warn Christians that any fantasies involving razor wire, thumbscrews, and Bill Gates uh, during a freeze-up, would be certainly injurious uh, to their souls. <laughs> well, you know, you're, you're, you're getting us into some real issues here. And, and I, I'll tell you, um, one of the things that I have found since the book has come out is how many people have strong opinions that are negative about the new technologies, but they don't necessarily voice them. Uh, they feel them. There are times even that they feel like taking a hammer to the doggone computer. I'm finding more and more people are saying to me, you know, I'm really upset about the amount of email that's coming in, and it seems like all day all I'm doing is answering email, and I'm not really doing the work that I'm supposed to be doing. 
and uh, I'm finding parents that are very concerned about what their children are getting into online. Uh, that issue, I think, you see addressed somewhat in the media, uh, not as much as it, sh- it should be. Um, so I-, I think people have uh, sort of positive and negative fantasies about the role of this technology in their lives. And some of our dreams are very optimistic and glowing, and others are sort of tragedies where we think uh, we'd be better off without the technology. Uh, give us a little bit of inspiration that you have called from the Bible uh, in terms of uh, how this has inspired you to become more virtuous, if you will, uh, and, and how you wish to inspire others in the high-tech world. Yeah, let's talk about uh, virtue first, just to get that out so we agree on what virtue is. We're talking about uh, qualities of character. So when we say somebody has, has good qualities in their character, they're a virtuous person. Virtue, with ethics, we talk about doing right. With virtue, we talk about being right. And so what I've tried to do is to paint a picture uh, of the technological world that we're in now that uh, shows that we're not seeking to be as virtuous as we should be. And, in fact, we're losing the whole concept of being people of good character. In the history of the Christian tradition, uh, virtue is one of the most important aspects of being faithful. Uh, and in fact, uh, one of the, the functions of the saints uh, in the tradition of the uh, Catholic Church in particular was to have people that you could look up to because they had certain qualities of character that you would emulate. And um, if you look at a lot of the artwork uh, in the Middle Ages, you'll find uh, people who are looking uh, up to someone of good character in the painting, and then that person, in turn, is looking up to Christ, and then in turn, Christ is looking across horizontally to the Father. And so there's this whole idea that we should emulate other people who are godlike or Christ-like. And that, I think, is a fundamental thing that we need to uh, think about today. Uh, do we admire people... Uh, not because of their technological virtue or their celebrity status or whatever, like the techno-gurus that are around, but rather because of the qualities of their character. And uh, and then that gets me in, in turn, in thinking about what are these qualities of character that, that we should hold up as particularly important in the information age. And uh, most of the chapters in the book are organized around a, a particular virtue. So the first one deals with discernment, uh, and then we get into uh, moderation and wisdom and so forth. So these are meant to be qualities of character that we can we can uh, take into the world. So what do you think happened here? Did the techno-revolution in computers, uh, did, that, did that whole movement simply mirror the qualities or lack thereof of our society, or did they actually create the problems? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, and I, I'm an academician, so I have to say both, you know. <laughs> it's never simple one way or the other, and it's, it's a bit of both. I think that the information age has come along at a time when we were already, as a people, particularly in the industrialized West, uh, along a certain path where we were thinking that both ethics and morality are less and less important. And what's really important is how much we can get out of this place, this world that we're in. How Can we manipulate uh, the technologies and the people around us to get what we want? There's a kind of uh, radical individualism, I think, that's at the core 
of what's happening in the Western world, in our culture, <clears throat> excuse me, and I also think that that now is represented in the information age. So our ideal for this new technology uh, becomes the individual sitting at a computer, free with high bandwidth to search around the World Wide Web, to kind of travel around the world, getting whatever they want, uh, satisfying their desires, getting information that's going to make them uh, uh, pr more professional or smarter or richer or whatever. So it's a very individualistic and a self-seeking orientation in the West, and I think the information age takes that and pushes it a step further. It's interesting that we talk about these information technologies in terms of renewing community, uh, but when it gets right down to it, there's not much of that happening at all. It's pretty much individuals using this technology for individual pursuit. And my guess is that uh, when you say both, does it mirror or does it in encourage... It makes it uh, a lot easier to uh, to follow a, a certain bent, if you will. If if that seed is already in you, if you're already into pornography, well, lordy, lordy, there you've you've got the whole wide world in front of you, so to speak. Right. Or uh, sports. If you're into sports trivia, I mean, this is heaven because you can go out there and get any kind of sports trivia you want. If you're if you're into making money uh, trading stocks. I mean, in a sense, this is the ideal medium because you can get on there and become a day tra trader from your own home. Uh, but as I point out in one of the chapters, the, the irony with all of this is that it doesn't really bring a kind of satisfying intimacy of any kind. Uh, it is a what I call prom promiscuity. And I don't mean that just in a sexual sense. I mean the day trader who gets in there and starts buying and selling companies rapidly because their numbers and are going up or down uh, doesn't necessarily know anything about the company or care anything about the company. The ethics of the company, the social responsibility, the value of the products or services they produce doesn't care about that at all. It's just there to kind of use the technology to get some uh, information to make some money. And I think in a sense that's what happens with so much of our use of these new technologies. You're listening to Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and my guest today is Dr. Quentin Schultz. Uh, he is a professor at Calvin College, and he is the author of Habits of the High-Tech Heart, Living Virtuously in the Information Age. Uh, Dr. Schultz, so you are saying that uh, even some of the activities that most people that I know, for instance, uh, you mentioned sports trivia. Most people I know would say, well, that's not a bad thing about, about the Internet, but you're saying that it can be. Exactly. Uh, let's take a virtue of moderation, which in the, among the ancient Greeks was sort of the supreme virtue. Uh, moderation means to live your life between excess and deficiency. Uh, you know, you think about something like alcohol, and you say, well, drink moderately. That's good. Okay. So that's the concept in terms of virtue. Now, what if we apply that to our lives in the information age? Do we say uh, we're living moderately with this information? We're, we're not spending too much time online. We're not getting too preoccupied with the stuff online, but we've got it in balance. And maybe one way of thinking about the balance is the balance between our uh, personal lives uh, where we live in person with other people, in the flesh, so to speak, the people around us that we work with and our families and so forth, 
And then there's this online world that we can get into out there, and uh, they can burn up a lot of time. I have talked to many people who tell me that there is so much material online that they like, even good stuff, that they'll stay up night after night till midnight or 1 a.m. surfing the web, just having a great time. And then, of course, they're very tired the next day. Um, You know, we have to remind ourselves, Fred, that in this culture, we have so many communication media at our disposal that we think just because we have these technologies, our communication is good. And yet you look at the surveys and you find, for example, that the average father in the United States spends less than 30 seconds per day in person communicating with his own children. I haven't, I haven't heard that statistic. Oh, yeah. And w- with oh. a mother, it's somewhere around 12 minutes on average, uh, a little bit better. But you begin to look at that and you say, now, what's going on here? It's not that, that as parents we're not communicating, but we're investing so much of our time in communicating with things that are distant and remote and not with those that are closest to us. Uh, you probably have heard the TV viewing statistics. Uh, the average household in the U.S. has at least one TV set on just over seven hours a day. The average adult watches, depending on their gender, between two and a half and three and a half hours of TV a day. Yeah, that I've heard. Yeah, and, and what happens with the Internet, by the way, is it becomes an add-on. It does take away a little bit of the TV viewing time. But in general, we know from the early surveys now that people are spending additional time on the Internet. So you take the TV viewing time, the radio listening time, and, and you add on to this now the Internet surfing time, and you begin to wonder, are we spending any time with each other in conversation, listening to one another? And for me, the key issue here is whether or not we're able to love, to speak of this in terms of virtue, because I don't think you can, we can love each other in the abstract. We can only love each other as we get to know each other in person as distinct persons. And so the extent to which we're heavily involved in technology and not involved in spending time with each other, relational time, getting to know each other, we can't really love each other. You know what I'd love to find out? I, I think that this technology is a little bit too new uh, for a definitive answer. And if you have any information, please share it now. But the people who meet and develop relationships online, I'm just wondering if they're able to actually grow a real significant relationship or if you have two uh, computer bugs that get together, are they still going to want to spend more and more of their time on the computer and less as a couple? Do you have any idea if that's uh, you know, the, the, the going thing? Well, there, there are all kinds of studies out already that address that, and they come to contradictory conclusions based on the methodologies that they use. Uh, some of them are very optimistic and suggest that uh, as pe- people spend time online getting to know other people, that those relationships pick up some of the characteristics of the more intimate relationships among people who get together in person and that these relationships are satisfying and worthy of the time that people spend on them. Other studies suggest that these relationships are pretty superficial, that because it's an anonymous medium, that people tend to make up things about themselves to to create a better image of themselves with others, um, or that the relationships are superficially intimate, so that it's like being on an airplane and somebody starts sharing their life with you and 
you know that this relationship is not going to go anywhere. When you're done with the flight, you're going to go in your other directions, and so there's real no development toward relationship. Now, my conclusion is that it's probably a little bit of both going on, and that some people are pretty good at being authentic people online and developing some good relationships. Uh, I've talked to some uh, people who are uh, disabled in different ways who really use the Internet to connect with people and develop friendships that way. But now, excuse me, I was actually talking about people who start on the net and end up in person and, and start dating that way. Okay. Well, that does happen, and uh, I don't know of any studies on that. I've uh, interviewed a number of people who have actually met online and gotten married. And one of them, uh, just last week, I got an email from saying that they were getting divorced after being married for less than a year. I'm not saying that all of these relationships end up that way. Uh, within the Christian arena, by the way, Fred, there are some sort of matchmaking websites now where you can go in and find people of the same faith, and uh, at least presumably these are people of the same faith, and, uh, and get to know them uh, through the aspect of the common faith right from the beginning. Uh, in fact, uh, the, the one couple that uh, got divorced recently that I had interviewed in the past uh, met that way online. So we don't have any long-term, you know, what they call longitudinal studies to know how all of this is going to uh, to come come out in the end. Right. My guess is that somebody that meets on the Internet, uh, they have the same challenges uh, staying a couple that anybody else has. Of course. Uh, okay. But I'm wondering if the added feature of them both being really, connect, you know, wired and it, it, spending a lot of time, that doesn't really mean that they're spending a lot of time on the Internet. They're, they obviously spend some time. But I'm just wondering if that's an added risk, and that's what you're saying. We have no, we have no conclusion on that. Yeah, we really won't for, for some time now. It's, we have to remember how new the cyberspace is. I mean, it, in one sense, it's been around, used by the military and academicians for quite some time, but in terms of a general public popular use of this thing, it's, it's fairly new. It was just 1995 that most people started to hear about the World Wide Web. So we've only got about seven years out trying to figure out, and a lot of the things like online, so-called online dating and so forth, are even newer than that. I'm surprised to find, Fred, that uh, as I interview people, I'm still finding people who will not buy anything online. They won't give their credit card they don't trust anything. Even if they're going into a website that's for a major company uh, that they deal with, uh, uh, you know, like uh, through uh, catalog ordering or whatever in the past. So uh, there's still quite a bit of social adjustment to this new medium that's taking place. It is hard to imagine that this is so new because we're so comfortable with it. It, it really is such a part of our lives that when I'll, I start thinking about the early 90s, I start thinking about the, um, the first time somebody explained email to me, it, it's, it's laughable that, that I went from that stage to the stage where I, I use the computer every day, and if my email's down, I'm, I'm unplugged. And along with that, a quick adoption of the new technology is the fact that we have come not so much to think about it anymore. Uh, when we're first getting to use a new technology, we're, we're giving it a lot of thought, we're in a learning process, we're wondering how much we should use this, exactly how we should use it, and after a while we learn certain patterns of use, and then we don't think about it so much. 
And so if I ask somebody, for instance, well, how much time do you think you spend online per day? Most people have to sit down and, and really think about that. They, they, they don't think about it naturally. And when they do and they begin to put the time together, they say, whoa, you know, what did I give up that I used to spend this time on? Which is a great question to ask. You, um, you mentioned a little bit about corporate immorality in the book. Could you speak to that? How does the uh, Internet and how, do, how does high technology contribute to that? Well, in fact, I wish uh, that I had uh, published the book a year later, in a sense, because of all the stuff that's come out with uh, WorldCom and Enron and Anderson and so on. Uh, because one of the stories that I don't think has been told as well in the media as it should be is that uh, a lot of the thinking in these corporations, uh, sort of being on the take, quick profit, uh, deceiving about profitability and so forth, that kind of thinking really grew up in the late 90s uh, around the whole dot-com phenomenon, uh, where people were creating companies on the fly, companies that had no chance of ever being profitable, that didn't even have a, a, a legitimate business, uh, no reasonable business plan and so on, but they had, a, they had a, a notion, and the notion could be sold in the stock market from people who are looking to make a quick killing on an initial public offering. And, uh, and so that kind of thinking, the dot-com thinking, began to transfer over to other corporations that were also thinking, hey, we've got to compete in the stock market. We've got to show a, a quarterly profit just above what we predicted, a penny above or whatever. And so now we're finding that what, what was going on in the late 90s was a tremendous amount of what I call database deception, where you've got a database uh, for your finances in a firm, and you just start playing around. You move stuff around, and suddenly a loss becomes a profit or a profit becomes a bigger profit. And it was all a game and as simple as using a computer to click around, to move stuff around. And, uh, and now that's unraveling, and we're finding out about it. And people, of course, are very upset, and the stock market is down. And I'm hoping that in the next year or two, uh, we'll see some of the figures in these companies that, that, that were lying to the, their stockholders and to the public coming forward and saying, yeah, what really happened here is we got caught in this dot-com frenzy. Uh, I have picked up, by the way, a couple of quotes already from some of the officials in these companies who have admitted that. And I'm going to ask you to save that for next week because we've we've touched on some interesting uh, area here. Uh, but, Dr. Schultz, uh, it's been a pleasure to have you this past half hour, and we will continue this conversation next week with your kind permission. Great. Thanks, Fred. And uh, I've been speaking with Dr. Quentin Schultz. Uh, a professor at Calvin College who has recently written Habits of the High-Tech Heart, Living Virtuously in the Information Age. It's available through uh, Baker Bookhouse. And uh, I'm Fred Stella. This is Common Threads and Interfaith Dialogue on WGVU. Please join us next week. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. 
Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. I'm Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. And, of course, we are in the midst of a technological revolution that began about 15 years ago. And many people are asking, how can we become, how can we stay or become virtuous people uh, still on the Internet every day, emailing every day? What are the cautions to look for? And uh, how is this affecting how we see each other as a community? Well, Dr. Quentin Schultz, a professor at Calvin College, has written a book about these very ideas. It's called Habits of the High-Tech Heart, Living Virtuously in the Information Age. We had Dr. Schultz on last week, and we are very happy to have him conclude his thoughts this week. Hello, Dr. Schultz. Hey, hello again, Fred. Thanks. And by the way, I wanted to say that um, the Information Age includes not just the Internet that we've been talking about, but all kinds of other technologies, too. We think of uh, satellite TV that's now digital, computerized, 300 channels, or you think of cell phones. You know, I mean, there, there's a lot going on here with digital technologies beyond the Internet. You're absolutely correct, and we do want to get into it. We've been really focusing on computers uh, this last show, uh, but this time we will get into some of the other media. And what I'd like to do, I had to cut you off last week because we were running out of time, so I'm going to ask the question over again, and if you would give me the same complete answer you gave last week, if you can remember back that far, and um, and add to it, because you were just about to give us some, some examples. The question I asked was about technological growth and corporate immorality and how one feeds the other, and I'm going to let you take the stage on that. Well, there are a number of ways we go at that, but as I said last program, uh, in the late 90s, because of the incredible economy, the rapid growth, particularly in the technology sector, uh, a lot of the people who were running these companies just felt like uh, this was the new economy, as they said, and, and they were going to be very profitable, even though they may not have had a good business plan or a, a, a sound business idea. Uh, and so there were all kinds of companies that were created uh, on the fly, and they sold public stock, and uh, then some of the corporate officials sold off their stock if they could, and then the companies went bankrupt. Uh, and meanwhile, uh, what happened is that some of the other companies, either in existing technology companies or in other areas, uh, felt that uh, they wanted to be part of the, this new economy, too. And so they may have started their own Internet divisions or whatever, but in any case, they began to look at the stock market in a different way, to focus on the quarterly reports, 
the focus on showing profitability, even if there wasn't real profitability. And now we're beginning to see this reported in the paper with a lot of these major companies, uh, the WorldComs and Enrons and so on. And uh, it's a very sad thing, but I think uh, we can say pretty safely that the information technologies make it easier for people to lie about uh, themselves or about the corporations that they supposedly serve. Because you can go in and manipulate. We used to talk about cooking the books, Fred. Now you can go in and cook the database much more quickly than you could cook the books. And uh, you can deceive stockholders and the general public. How would you rate the American church in terms of responding to to pretty much what we're talking about now, um, especially the the corporate shenanigans? And I'm talking across the board, liberal, conservative, moderate. Uh, what have you heard in the pulpit? What uh, the, the, the people that you know who are men and women of the cloth, uh, have they gotten on the bandwagon soon enough, or are we trying to catch up here? Oh, I think it's almost entirely catch-up. Uh, I'm amazed as I talk to uh, religious people in our community here in West Michigan that uh, there seems to be very little interest in discussing all of this uh, corporate greed and uh, deception. And I'm, I'm puzzled about all of this because it seems to me that uh, you, could, you could take any faith group in West Michigan, you would find people that have been burned financially uh, by some of these shenanigans in, in, in any uh, congregation. Uh, I mean, we're all affected by this. You look at people's retirement uh, accounts, you know, some of them are down 50% and all because of the uh, economic downturn. I don't want to put all of that on, on corporate greed, but let's face it, the new economy concept to some extent was just a sham because it was predicated on the idea that you didn't have to be profitable and that uh, the economy was going to continue to grow forever. And, and, and we know that capitalism goes up and down and up and down. That's just the way it is. And the downsides are one of the problems with capitalism. But uh, we learn to live with that and waiting for the next upside of the economy. So I'm puzzled why the religious communities uh, have not picked up on this more. Maybe you've got some insights in that. Actually, I don't. <laughs> I wish I did. Uh, and even with the publication of your book, you're not finding any interest? You're not kindling any, any little fires? I am finding interest on the part of various professionals. Uh, I just got a letter, for example, from a, an attorney. Uh, that said uh, the book really resonated with him because there's a section in there where I talk about the fact that uh, in so many professions in the information age, we're losing track of the basic purpose of the profession. And, uh, and I mentioned attorneys specifically as uh, being able to get so much more information by getting email files uh, from uh, hard drives and everything. I mean, this in one sense, the information age has been a great thing for attorneys, but it doesn't mean that attorneys are any more interested in justice, one of the, one of the great virtues. Um, and I think that uh, this, this becomes a real problem for professions, and I, and I understand what uh, I've also heard from a lot of people that are in, specifically in communication-related professions um, who are very concerned that the World Wide Web is becoming a way to uh, disingenuously present your organization. Uh, so it's a new image-making kind of game that to have a website and present your organization, whether it's a, a for-profit or a non-profit, in a particular light uh, to people. 
and they're concerned that this is not really authentic and balanced often the way it's taking place. It's sort of like an, an advertisement that may present one view of a product and ignore the rest. And I think that is true, by the way. I think that so much of what's happening on the Internet is more or less deceptive. And unless we begin to think about the World Wide Web as something like a commercial rather than a neutral information bank, uh, then we're being pretty naive about it. Let's talk about hate speech. Uh, that's certainly a subject that uh, is... Uh, in, Great topic. Yeah, yeah. And uh, first of all, let me ask you this. Do you know legally where hate speech becomes criminal? Well, let's, let's talk about the problem of cyberspace with respect to any regulation at all. Um, and and this, is, this is a huge problem that we're facing. There's a lot of hate speech on. Uh, there's a lot of it that some people might say ought to be illegal. Uh, but how do you get a handle on a medium that exists simultaneously everywhere and nowhere? Uh, where we have uh, gambling sites, you know, down in the Caribbean and people using credit cards from the U.S. to get access. Um, the, the, the whole problem here with obscenity, with hate speech, and, and other things that we might be concerned about online is that we don't have any legal uh, precedents for figuring out how to address them online. And um, I think... This is going to really dog us. In the, it's going to be one of the big moral and legal quandaries of the next ten years. The, you know, the Supreme Court, with respect to obscenity, has has affirmed in the past the idea that local communities can set their standards, so that the standards, let's say, in Holland, Michigan, may not be the same for what's available in Manhattan and New York. Well, what do you do with the internet, where this stuff is available everywhere? It, and most people are saying we're not going to be able to regulate anymore. We don't have any basis for regulation as a society. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Okay, so I'm in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and uh, I go to a kiddie porn site that is is being uh, uh, manufactured. That's not the right word, but it, it's uh, centered uh, from a site uh, in Oslo, Norway. Okay. So if I'm watching that in Grand Rapids, I'm not breaking any law, but what if I download any material onto my computer? Do I not break the law then? You well, know? you might be breaking the law. Uh, we'll, you know, once you have pornography in your uh, possession, uh, you, um, you might be breaking the law. And so one of the things that we'll have to have uh, worked out is what possession means with respect to digital products. Uh, the way the World Wide Web works, when you go to a site, quote-unquote, you are actually clicking on a, a hyperlink which makes an exact copy of something that exists somewhere else on another computer and transfers that copy to your computer. Uh, so uh, we could say technically you have a copy of that material right now on your computer. It's easy to erase, uh, but you have it in your possession. You might print it out. That presents a different kind of possession. You might distribute it to others. Uh, that That's a different kind of legal issue about distribution. Um, so in a sense, what you say is true about possession uh, in a technical way, but the courts will have to work all of this out and figure out, uh, figure out what to do. The hate speech, just to get back to your 
principal uh, question in the beginning there, Fred. The hate speech issue is amazing because the growth of hate speech online over the last five years has just been astronomical. Uh, there are some uh, folks that try to come up with the numbers, how many hate sites are there, how many pages of hate material, and so on. And for a while they were trying to keep track of this, and now it's really impossible to keep track of it. There's so much of it out there. And small groups, uh, very small numbers of people who may be hateful with respect to some particular class of social class of people or ethnic group or racial group or whatever, uh, who may not have had anybody else in their community to share their hate with, now find people online, and so they together put out some kind of website spewing forth their, their hate stuff. Uh, there's a lot, for example, there's a lot of uh, neo-Nazi hate stuff out there. One of my colleagues here at Calvin uh, follows a lot of that, and uh, it's just been astronomical growth. So I think we could say that the World Wide Web it has been facilitating small numbers of people who are very hateful about other people being able to organize and publish their versions of hatred. And again, it falls on the responsibility of all faith communities uh, to contradict what they're seeing on the web. I mean, that's really the the only way I see faith communities being able to respond. And that means that the faith community has to be knowledgeable about this stuff, and there have to be people in the communities who are committed to doing something about it. For instance, a pastor who is willing, even from the pulpit, to talk about this stuff and say that it does exist, and here's how to think about it, and here's how to respond to it. Uh, and from what I can tell, by and large, this is not going on, that the, the new information technologies are developing apart from the faith communities seriously critiquing and addressing them. I was on an interview uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, so it was a call-in show, and somebody called in who was a librarian and said that they feel that uh, they have no role in this society anymore, that librarians are sort of being put out to pasture because everybody's got the World Wide Web. Well, my response to that was librarians are more important than ever now because we need them to help us organize what's available online to know what the good sources are and the reputable sources and all. Uh, similarly, in the faith communities, we need religious leadership that's willing to say, this is what's happening now in the information society, and here is what we need to watch out for. This is WGVU. The show is Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, and I'm speaking today to Dr. Quentin Schultz, a professor at Calvin College and the author of Habits of the High-Tech Heart, Living Virtuously in the Information Age. Hey, we, can I tell you a story, Fred? Talk to me. i I got a couple of stories I just want to share with you, because these are things that happened to me recently, and... I'm still trying to figure them out. Uh, a friend of mine who was a pastor in Maine happened to be in town a while back, and he's pastor of a Baptist church, about 120 members. And uh, one Sunday morning recently, in the middle of the sermon, a cell phone went off in the congregation. And the first ring, and you know, everybody's a little bit unnerved, like, why did this person leave it on? And then it rang a second time, and people started to get a little bit upset at that point. Then it rang a third time. And at that point, my friend, the pastor, stopped his sermon, and everybody's looking around, and they sort of identified the culprit. And then, if you can imagine this, he answers the phone, and he starts talking. In in the middle of the sermon, this is going, so the, my friend, the pastor, just stops his sermon and waits for this guy to complete his 
conversation, which was nothing important, and then he uh, turns off the cell phone, and the pastor carries on. And the pastor said to me, now, what am I to do about that? How am I to think about it? And I said, well, I don't know. This is a new kind of thing. And it, it's a, you know, it's a, we, we've started down this path already where people are out at a restaurant and they get a call on the cell phone and pretty soon, you know, you're having dinner with them and they're talking to somebody else. This idea that, that, that our uh, communication from outside of the current group that we're with is necessarily more important and worth interrupting our communication within the group. And, of course, for this to happen in a church service is amazing. Well, well I mean, it's, t- it's, it's a good reason, then, of course, that guns are not allowed in church. <laughs> well, uh, you, you, you wonder about what we should allow and should not allow. Um, uh, I, I've also seen, by the way, uh, kids in churches with these little uh, computers that they have. Little like Game Boys? Yeah, like Game Boys. Oh. Uh, and that seems, at least in some churches now, that seems to be okay as long as they take the sound off because it keeps them there uh, and uh, keeps them happy, keeps them quiet, they're not fidgeting or whatever. Um, so, so there's something going on here. Now, here's a second story, and it's related, and then maybe both of these stories together can help us figure out some things that are going on in our society. I was speaking to a group in Chicago, a group of people who work in technology, uh, mostly uh, Christian folks who are doing ministry with technology. And... Uh, this was in a big ballroom in a hotel. And as I was speaking and looking out over the group at a luncheon meeting, I, I began to notice, even though the light was focusing on me and it was not real bright out there, that people were on their laptops. And they were, and then I could hear the clicking away. And it was maybe about a third of the group was on their computers clicking away. And, and, and I'm continuing my speech. And I'm, then it dawns on me that they have these wireless modems in this a hotel, so that you can put a little card in your notebook and you can be on the internet wherever you are in the hotel with your laptop, and say so they were doing their email and all while I was speaking. So they weren't taking notes. That never crossed your mind. Well, it did, but you know you can tell if somebody's taking notes because occasionally they look at you. Uh, they have some, uh, and uh, and there's a rhythm in their note taking on the on the computer that's that relates to your presenting. And uh, because I, you know, I have this in the classroom and all, and this was not the situation. So I, I, uh, I, I incorporated this in my presentation since I was talking about technology and all. And I said, you know, this is a perfect example of the problems we get into where you're here at a luncheon supposedly to be listening to me and I'm speaking and about a third of you are on your computers doing other things. Well, then they began to look at me. And, uh, and it was a rather uncomfortable moment and, and maybe I shouldn't have been so direct about it. No, I think you should. <laughs> well, wait till you hear the rest of the story. So uh, it just so happens that a former student of mine was at that conference and came into the ballroom for the session after the one that I spoke. And he sat down, and at the spot where he was sitting, there was a note that somebody had written and passed down the aisles while I was speaking. And the note said, does this guy think that we shouldn't eat while he is talking, too? <laughs> and so he copied that note then and faxed it to me um, with a little smiley face, you know. But there is something going on here where we're attending to technological communication in such a way that it's interfering with our own real communication with real people. And I suspect that it's not just our communication 
with family and friends and all, but I think it's in congregations. I think it's in interfering with our prayer, with our fellowship, uh, with the uh, naturally good forms of communication that we need to foster as religious communities. I couldn't agree more. Uh, let's talk about uh, some other applications. I was just about to go from computers to something like cell phones when you brought up that story. Uh, what about uh, satellite TV and uh, cable and, and all of that? You address some of those issues in the book. Of course, and we have to because what's happening is that uh, old-fashioned technologies like television are becoming new technologies in this digital age. And it's not just digital in terms of broadcasting a digital or a computerized signal uh, rather than the old analog signal, but uh, it's also the quantity that's available to us. I mean, this is a crucial thing to understand, that, that the digital age represents information almost without boundaries. And so we're moving toward a kind of menu-driven entertainment uh, world, where if Fred wants a particular TV show, Leave it to Beaver, that was on 30 years ago or whatever, he'll be able to, to use his equivalent of a TV remote control and click on that program, and boom, you've got it. So we're not talking about just 300 channels. We're talking about a menu-driven system that's a smorgasbord, practically anything you want, whenever you want it. <clears throat> and um, this is why, for instance, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the entertainment corporations have been trying to get extensions on their copyright on their uh, films, so that they, they want to have rights to films forever, so that... <laughs> They can continue to make money on them in a digital universe for years and years and years. Um, well, I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with this kind of development, but the question we have to ask is, are we good enough people as individuals and at holding each other accountable that we can live with some kind of moderation in this sort of world where practically anything is available to anybody who has the technology? And my concern is that we're not, and that we need discernment, we need moderation, and we need... We need communities of faith where we can hold each other accountable, uh, talk about these things, and ask each other about them. Otherwise, I think what's going to happen is we're going to become the first great society uh, that uh, does little more than entertain itself. Let me tell you something that I know I'm guilty of and see if if you might share any of this. Uh, Imagine uh, 20 years ago. Imagine trying to to do business. Uh, Let's say we were trying to organize this interview, but you don't have a telephone, I would be a little frustrated. I mean, obviously, you're here in Grand Rapids, and if our schedules worked out any differently, you'd be here in the studio with me. But let's say that's not the issue. If you didn't have a telephone, it would just mean more work for me in trying to, 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 to organize this, and I might be a little frustrated. I remember uh, about 15, 20 years ago when answering machines were, uh, everybody was getting an answering machine, but some people were still very nervous, and when they got an answering machine, they were almost offended, and they would hang up because they just didn't know how to talk on an answering machine. All right, now I believe we're, we're to a point, I'm at a point, when I call somebody and they don't have an answering machine, I'm like, get on the boat, buddy, <laughs> you know, this is, this is 2002, you need an answering machine, because now the, uh, the ball is still in my court to try to get a hold of you. Uh, and I've also trans, uh, transformed that to people who do not have email. I'll ask somebody, what's your email address? And when they say, well, I don't, I don't have email access, it's like my world just got harder because now I can't communicate with you. <laughs> do, 
Is that resonating at all? Oh, yes, very much so. Uh, uh, I have had some colleagues in, uh, in recent months who have said that they are too accessible now. And so uh, you imagine flipping now from one problem where you're inaccessible to you're too accessible. And I think uh, on either end of that spectrum, life becomes difficult for us today. Uh, and so for even doing a lot of simple things like keeping in touch with certain people uh, or even with distant relatives, or you think of, of uh, congregations keeping in touch with missionaries that are overseas or whatever, there's some basic stuff that something like email is just fantastic for. And when you don't have it, it uh, that kind of communication becomes more difficult. However, the other side of it is just as problematic, it seems to me. If we're too accessible we end up uh, not really be- being able to set our own schedules and determine how our time is used. And uh, there are days when I think I would just like to get rid of this email. It's sort of a albatross, you know, and I find more and more people that feel that way. So in one sense, we have to have the technology, and it has some wonderful uses. On the other hand, if we're not careful in how we use it, it ends up being a problem for us. Sure. It is a matter of discipline, and it is a matter of uh, letting people know. Because uh, I do that all the time. I am not somebody who, who lives as chained to the uh, computer, and, and I let people know that they cannot expect an immediate answer from me every time I get an email. But just by your saying that, you're suggesting that you're not quite with it. Because the norm is that with email, you know, it's got to be 12 hours or at least 24-hour return or somebody's going to get ticked off with you. Yeah, well, I guess those people are out there. Because <laughs> uh, sometimes I don't check the email for... I mean, I check it definitely once a day, and sometimes I don't check it twice. And so they, they live with what they get, I guess. I just, I've just i got a life. <laughs> yeah, you've, you've got to make some judgments on it, and people have to be understanding. Sure. Uh, two years ago, my wife and I took a year off for a sabbatical, and we lived in Florida. And we were in a community where the average age there was probably about 75 uh, condominium area, and uh, we, they called us the kids. Um, we're in our 50s. and Well, uh, one of the things that I discovered there was that almost all of these senior citizens had uh, email, and they found that the number one thing they enjoyed about it was keeping in touch with their grandchildren. And I thought, you know, that's true, that there, there has always been a problem in grandparents keeping in touch with grandchildren. And uh, I bet, given the fact that the grandkids today are probably really wired up, that, that that really does work splendidly for them. Oh, absolutely. And when the when the grandparents and grandchildren live in the same town, you've, you've got a grandchild to come over and fix your computer when it goes bluey. Uh, <laughs> Good point. Uh, 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 listen, uh, Dr. Schultz, we are out of time right now, but I want to just mention real quick uh, that you are the author of Habits of the High-Tech Heart, Living Virtually in the Information Age. This book has just been released through Baker Bookhouse uh, since August, I guess. And I want to thank you so much for your spending time on Common Threads. You're welcome. It's a pleasure, Fred. We'll talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye. I'm Fred Stella. This is Common Threads on WGVU. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. 
In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website, www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Thank you.